This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. And that is hammered. Oh, my. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. You know, anything travels that far, I'd have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? This is a simple game. You throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball. You got it! You're listening to The Roundtable with Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, and Mark Carrig on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Episode 60 of The Roundtable. I'm Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy McCullough. Uh, Mark Carrig is on assignment. So we have Rustin Dodd pinch hitting form, uh, which is fantastic. I've had a question on my brain for years. Rustin, what did Andy's desk smell like at the Kansas City Star when you took it over? Like, what was in there? I don't recall Andy having a desk. I don't know if newspapers gave you desk in like 2015. I think they just sort of said, go to the ballpark and never come in here. I don't know. I'm a big roundtable head, and I, I feel like you guys had so many good references to the 2014 and 2015 Royals. You were like, you know what we need? References to the 2016 Royals. <laughs> Seriously. Like, okay, let's just get right into it. Chesler Cuthbert, what are your thoughts? I mean, he's from Nicaragua, so that made him a, a novelty in baseball. I believe he's one of three or so in the history of baseball who are, are from that country. It might be four. I'm not not sure, but uh, he didn't really stick. But uh, he was uh, he was a hero. He also po- he had a lot of uh, chickens. That was his thing. He <laughs> uh, so I could keep going. Chesler Cuthbert Chickens. It's fun to say. It's a good fantasy team name. All right, but we're not here to talk about Chesler Cuthbert's chickens. We're here to talk uh, baseball. And I just want to say at the top. Uh, I'm not going to take a bow. I'm not going to take a victory lap, but I am the only pundit who was very clear that the Angels should sell. I was never on board with them reloading. I called this. Andy, why were you so wrong? Well, I, I think it's great that we have Russ on this week for a variety of reasons, not just because you can pick up his book, Kingdom Quarterback, and bookstore soon about Patrick Mahomes and the rise of Kansas City, but also because he's been texting me about how the Angels completely goofed and <laughs> should have traded Otani, and I figured we should just give him the floor. Well, okay, so this was my take, and it, it all stemmed from our, our great Angels beat writer, Sam Bloom. When, when the, so they've lost seven games in a row now, so this is pretty extreme. But at the point that they'd lost four games in a row, Sam Bloom wrote that their playoff hopes are fading. And I just thought if you come out of the deadline and you lose four games in a row and that makes your playoff hopes fade, maybe you were never really in it to begin with. And so perhaps, you know, buying or not, you know, selling off pieces was not the smartest course of action. That is my argument. It's like now seven games is, you know, starts to get a little little bad here but uh four game losing streak and you're like okay we're done it's like it was was all up to that uh i think you maybe should have you know calculated this a little bit better before you made your decisions is my general point 
Phil Nevin did say the other day, and I think this was before last night's loss. He said something to the effect of like, look, I know everyone says it's over. And I was like, oh my gosh, like they were just going for it six days ago. Yeah. Look, this outcome, I don't think any of us on this show, maybe Mark, because he's an idiot and he's not here. Maybe Mark thought it was a, it was like going to work. I think we all understood that they were, you know, they're Bonnie and Clyde driving off the cliff, right? Like everyone understood this wasn't probably going to work. I think we all just sort of hoped that would become clear on like September 28th rather than August 8th, you know, because it's just it's like, oh, wow, this is going to make these last two months with Otani potentially really deflating. Like if they, you know, end up being a 78 win team. Sam has been pretty uh, 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 consistently pessimistic about their chances. <laughs> and it's really not because of disposition or anything. It's just because he can read like uh, the standings and sort of understand actuarial tables and how probability works. Um, and he watches the team every night. Uh, right. Right, right. Unlike me, he stays up to watch the team because he doesn't live in New York. But yeah, I mean, there is a uh, there it 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 collapsed so quickly that I oh, man, it's the Angels. You know, they remain the Angels. I will say this. I mean, in all seriousness, um, if they decided that their only chance of re-signing Otani was this path then you can sort of understand it, even if it looks incredibly, you know, short-sighted and, you know, right now. So I guess I get that. It does put a lot of pressure on them to actually re-sign him or at least really give a strong effort. But, I mean, that's, I guess, the one defense of what they did. But did buying, does that increase their chances to re-sign Otani? Could they have just maybe done sort of a half measure? I know everybody always sort of criticizes, like, the passive half measure where you don't buy or sell, but... Maybe just holding on to Otani, not buying, and then being like, let's try to re-sign this guy in the offseason. Could have been better. I don't know. Who who can say? I didn't expect this to succeed. They The Angels, to me, were like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly, where they're just going, let it ride! And like just against the backboard. I knew that that was the likeliest uh, scenario. But if you've increased your chances of signing Otani from 0% to 2%, that's worth a lot. That's worth the prospects they gave up. That's worth, I don't know what the actual percentages is. I'm not in conversation with Otani uh, this week. You know, last week we were texting about birthday parties and stuff. But I just think if you increase it that much, because without Otani, like they, it's not like the Angels had a robust farm system that was bursting at the seams. And even without Otani, the conveyor belt's gonna start, and the Angels are back, baby. This, this is it. This is their last gasp at relevance. And they, you know, they chucked a half court shot and hurt someone in the process. But that's what they had to do. I think. I still think. Actually, you know, to continue your, your analogy, Grant, they're more like. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, just sort of scrambling against all, you know, hope to try and save this thing. And they've ended up like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Boogie Nights just sitting in the car be like, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. <laughs> so stupid. I, so I think stupid. Now, now I'm going to go with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Magnolia where he's like on the phone. He's like, <clears throat> you got you got CJ Cron? <clears throat> oh. <clears throat> okay. You, you, got, you got Randall Gritchick? <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah, one of those. All right, sorry. Look, they've, they've raided the farm system, what remained of the farm system, but like it doesn't make a difference to their long term trajectory of keeping Otani. It's just all about like, can this team actually 
win. And like I was watching the game last time, you look at the lineup and you're like, okay, Luis Renjifo is leading off. Okay. Uh, Otani bats second. I like that. Third was Brandon Drury. Like, okay. Fourth was Mike Moustakas. Fifth was CJ Crom. And I was just kind of like, feels it's it's a little short. It's a little short as far as lineups go. <laughs> but when you got that kind of bullpen, you got that kind of rotation. I mean, yeah, no, I, 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 I feel bad because I was rooting for them. Like in all my trade deadline stuff, I was like, "Hey, this might not work," but I'm, I applaud them for going for it. Let's go, Angels! In but it, I expected it to fail. But I like over time, I wanted some ups to go with the downs over a period of like three weeks where you almost kind of sort of believed in the Angels. And instead, they're just like uh, just throwing up immediately in the trash can, just like, ah, (laughs) and they're done. I mean, they're done. I feel terrible about them. I went back. So when I was pro Angels, I went back to the Giants because I saw a parallel with the Giants in the waning days of Barry Bonds and how he had no support. In 2004, he's got an on-base percentage of like 620 or something like that. And there was no players around him. And I I was like, you know what the Giants should have done back then? Should have just emptied a thin farm system out and gotten Barry Bonds some help. And I was like, gosh, who were the best prospects back then? Uh, Oh, Matt Cain. Yeah, if they traded him for C.J. Crone back then, <laughs> they wouldn't have won any of those titles. So, whoopsie doodle, maybe the Angels extra screwed up there, but we'll see. We'll be back in 10 years because this show will definitely still be going on. I spoke to someone on our audio team about the idea of us getting merch. You know, if you're a roundtable head uh, and you would buy a t-shirt that says the only pro-labor baseball podcast, email <laughs> Mark Carrig at mcarrig at theathletic.com. Please. Please let him know. Yeah. Or just tweet at him. Yeah. The thing with the Angels and the deadline and going for it is that over and over again, the Mets are an example of this as well, is that the things that I think the public, fans, and sometimes we as in the media who are like searching for action want, like teams to quote, go for it, often doesn't work. Uh, and it often doesn't work in spectacular fashion. And so the teams that like don't go for it, the teams that, you know, like, for example, the Orioles executed a hard tank, the Braves do things that I think don't qualify as going for it per se, right? Like the Astros, et cetera. Uh, that's a little different with Verlander. That gets into more. I'm trying to make a broader point. I think that like the things that we, you know, the the, the royal we want our teams to do are often like not short-sighted, but you can understand the other side of them in a way that, but the thing is we've been so like in the post Astros, like, you know, scandal landscape, you sort of see like the flaws in, uh, you know, like sort of genuflecting before the C-suite executive class. And it just kind of creates this like weird, I don't know. I'm not making a great point here. When a team wins the World Series and we sort of write about why they did or like the successes, you know, rarely does a general manager come out and say like, you know, the guy that was like a 4-1 player on this team, we almost actually traded him like two and a half years ago. <laughs> the deadline, you know, like we almost traded him when he was like 22 and man, that would have been stupid. Uh, you know, you, you just don't get that story. So like the the moves you don't make just don't really get the same media attention as the moves that people do make. So the smart moves you don't make, you know, over time, just just become kind of forgotten. 
And the moves that, when you're talking about going for it and those moves that are satisfying to the fans, those are like a Cool Ranch Dorito chip. They're tasty, we crunch them, we forget about them. And the the executives got to live with that. And they got to focus on, a, you know, the longer term, a shorter term, all that stuff. Not us, baby. We're just we're just riffing on the moment. And we're just thinking like, <laughs> oh, Randall Gritchick. Yeah, I've always been a Gritchick guy. Right. He's a two-win player. You can always have more of those. Like, yeah. Uh, but I mean, when I, when I wrote about uh, the Angels for the Baseball Prospectus Annual, I, their problem is just so clear. Their worst players are just Remoras sucking wins above replacement from the top players. And you just... It's not about getting more stars. It's not about finding an Anthony Rendon who works. It's about just raising the floor for everyone on that roster. And I don't know why they can't do it because they, like Tyler Anderson's perfectly reasonable, perfectly reasonable move in that context just didn't work. And I don't know if it's organizational. I don't know if it's like monkey paw related. I just know it hasn't been working for him. And it's bizarre. Some of it, I mean, obviously the overarching issue is, you know, Artie Moreto's ownership, but some of it does feel monkey paw type stuff like Logan O'Hoppy just sort of you know getting hurt like they they finally go on a heater and Mike Trout immediately breaks his hand like that sort of stuff you know and Anthony Rendon like has you know a chronic broken leg or something um you know but like there's no not not exactly clear what the injury is you know there's just all that sort of stuff that they they are sort of perpetually under a black cloud some of it though is because they've been seeding the cloud that way you know with the way the team is run <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Anthony Rendon, he's 33. He's not 42. He's just been a complete wash for the last three seasons. Dad, I will chalk that up to Monkey's Paw. And I feel bad because the Angels actually do have an association with a monkey. So maybe that's like the Maybe they actually literally cut his paw off and like we're wishing on it. I don't know, but. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I do know this: is that you ever meet someone who like they learn a new word and then they have to drop it in every conversation? It's like, oh, I think that's very effervescent. Uh, that's me with Logan Ohapi. I was, was going to say. Now, yeah, now that I know how yeah, that yeah, he yeah. pronounces his name, it's like, yeah. well, have you considered the Logan Ohapi problem? Yeah, you know, like all right. that stuff. So look if we Ohoppy. if we ever figure out how to talk about Tyler Malé, we'll we'll be on the Twins every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyler M. Good old Tyler. Tyler M. Our fan, friend of the pod. Tyler M. Tyler M. What do you think they could have got for Otani? Like, honestly, would it have been that kind of uh, Elvis Andres, Matt Harrison, Saltalamachia franchise building trade for a few months, couple months of a two-way player? I think an awful lot. I mean, is that a, a ton? A, a, like, is it Juan Soto times two? Like, what, is, what, is, what does he command? I mean, I'm totally speculating because I don't know what the offers that they had, you know, on the table were. But certainly, right, like two premium prospects to start with, right? Probably throw in another piece or two. Like, is that what the package would have essentially been? Like two, you know, top 50 to 100 prospects, maybe a top 20 guy plus a, another top, you know, 75 guy and then a couple other pieces. I don't know. Well, what is like, does it, is it more than that for a rental? I don't, I don't think it would be more than that. I think for like, if you're making that deal with the Dodgers, you can probably get one of the two catchers, right? Cartaya or rushing. And then probably one of the non Bobby Miller arms. And then, you know, kind of pick or choose from this list of seven guys. You can have two of them. Right. But like, I think that the challenge, I mean, in some ways, in variety of ways, right? The, the, to share a trade 
changed the landscape for how these trades were done. Uh, and that teams stopped giving up players who were so close to the majors. They started to sort of go deeper into. So if you look at like, you know, outside of Mackenzie Gore, the people going back to the Nationals were mostly lower level um, because teams are just way less willing to give up on, you know, a 19 year old shortstop like Elvis Andrews, who's big league ready, probably because they know like he'll be in the big leagues for us next year. You know, and teams are so much more aggressive in how they um, sort of promote prospects that, you know, like they're just not there's this idea that there would have been like an instant, like an instant sort of like, oh, wow, this is what our core looks like in the way that it kind of was in Texas. Like, I just don't think that it's not that they wouldn't be talented. It's just they would be further away, most likely. They could have got a lot, but then they wouldn't have Shohei Otani. Right. And what are they next year? What are they the year after that? What, what, you know, maybe you get someone, maybe the Giants do trade Kyle Harrison and Mark Luciano and it works out just as perfectly as it, they could have hoped. Does that make the Angels a playoff team? Well, I don't know because they weren't with Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. <laughs> so like, what are we talking about here? They need, like they needed like a 10 for one deal and just like grab that uh, five to 15 section of another team's, you know, and hope that uh, two of them worked out. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Hey, did you see what the Orioles did the other day? What you got on that, Grant? Uh, well, it definitely didn't involve Logan O'Hoppy. I'll tell you that much. No, talk, talk about the Orioles. Well, I mean, just the Kevin Brown stuff, I think, is... Uh, oh, is, God. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You saw, right? Remember yes. with the Bron- Grant, you got to stay up, man. I'm sorry. I don't know what's going I on. Got, they, no, I have feelings on this, but you, well, you go ahead. you agree from so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> Grant's, like, furiously Googling Orioles last night. Oh, another good game for Gunnar Henderson. <laughs> Colton Kowser? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate... The Orioles' ability to consistently obscure the product on the field. I <laughs> I think that's funny. Obviously, it's so like it's such a bizarre suspension. <laughs> that, so like, bizarre. You just sort of don't even know like what to say besides what? What are you guys doing? Uh, but it is, you know, a nice reminder of <clears throat> who controls the sport. Uh, it's a collection of Wealthy fellows who kind of do what they want. Uh, and sometimes their whims are more puzzling than at other times. So that's all. I just found that whole thing to be uh, – it's going to be a topic for quite some time, it seems like, just because, you know, this gentleman's got to go back on the air at some point, you know. And, like, the, the, the team sort of has to, like, figure out how to, you know, message the return of a broadcaster who pointed out a fact. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> – Nobody would have said boo. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead, Rustin. I watch a lot of MLB TV, you know, like not like every local broadcast, but, you know, watch a lot of the local broadcasts or whatever. I was thinking, you know, we could pick on the Orioles or whatever, but like there are a lot of local broadcasts around baseball that could stand to be a little bit more critical. And I think there really is like to use the term chilling effect is kind of maybe a little extreme in baseball terms or whatever. But I think there kind of is like, if you watch the average local broadcast, they're not very critical of their team. And in fact, you know, and and I think that the kind of fans, like it does a disservice to fans. I, I really think it does. And so if, if you are an owner of a baseball team or somebody who runs a local, you know, broadcast or an RSN, like, 
I really think the more honest you can be to your fans, the more they are going to appreciate it. I watch a lot of the Mets broadcasts, and I think they're probably like the gold standard in terms of being honest and critical of of the team that they cover. You know, the Yankees broadcast is also good, but there are a lot that could stand to be like, you know, your team's 20 games under 500. Like, you don't need to, you know, pretend anything is different than it is, you know? So that's all. I don't... The Orioles, this is a, a very, very extreme example, but they're not the first broadcast to get upset with, you know, a broadcaster for being negative. I mean, players oftentimes will say things. You're in a tough spot when you're a, a local broadcaster. You're on the team plane. Players will get upset. They're, they're hearing what you say while they're in the clubhouse, like during the game. So it's not an easy position to be in, but I think... The more people can understand, like, you know, a wise person once said, like, like if you're, you know, always saying, you know, if you never say anything negative about a team or if you never say anything critical, anything you say positive really just doesn't mean anything. So anyway, that, that's my general take on the situation. I've covered good teams. I have covered awful teams. And if I'm saying anything positive, anything positive about an awful team. There are going to be people in the comments being like, here comes Grant carrying the water for ownership. <laughs> oh boy, you know, Mr. Pollyanna. And uh, which is fine. I, that's just the nature of uh, instant feedback. You're not getting that kind of instant feedback on a broadcast, right? You are just in a bubble. You are uh, the rich scion who uh, is involved with Orioles ownership. And, and maybe your dad owned the Orioles. And maybe now you are just in your bubble. And you're hearing this. And, and you've never heard things you don't like in your life. You don't hear no very often. You don't hear uh, pushback. And you're listening to this and you're going... Gosh, dang it. You know, this is just, and you don't have that feedback that people actually want to hear that they were trash against the Rays and now they're not. And that's cool. Like that's like, that, that's a good story. That is not uh, making them look cheap back then. If you didn't want to look cheap in 2021, maybe don't be cheap, but like he's telling a good positive rags to riches story. What are you doing here? Why are you Streisand affecting this? Why are you drawing attention to a guy doing his job? And the thing is, is that Kevin Brown is good. Like I also listen to a lot of MLB TV and I'm not gelling with all of the announcers, maybe not even most. Kevin Brown's one. Like, he's good. He's good. It's just very bizarre. And the Streisand effect is a good is a good sort of uh, metaphor or whatever. To, because, like, this is not, you know, whatever. It, there, there, is a, there is a consistent sort of push and pull, I think, for the team broadcaster. And, you know, the Mets are a great example um, because, you know, Russell, you mentioned sort of like – they're probably considered the gold standard. I know, you know, probably San Francisco. I generally don't have – I'm not awake to listen to San Francisco enough, but they're considered up there as well. You know, Joe Davis is the king of media uh, in L.A., obviously. But, um, you know, like with the Mets, they're sort of uh, refreshing in their candor about the team often, you know, has created issues within the clubhouse. I mean, like friend of the show, Buck Showalter, muted – the televisions so the players can't hear them you know during the games which like it does point you know there's been incidents over the years you know david price and uh uh uh, dennis eckersley getting into it you know like it's a consistent sort of push pull it is weird to see such a seemingly small thing that couldn't just be handled quietly like you can get that message across without sort of like turning it into a multi-day, you know, for lack of a better term, like scandal, <laughs> you know, like you, I mean, you can just say like, Hey, 
frame it a different way, which like I don't agree with, you know, but it's just like it's just such a bizarre overplay of a minor thing. I am genuinely curious to see how the next few days play out as they try and like as the Orioles try and like land the plane on this one, because it's like a remarkable own goal. This has happened before. The Orioles let John Miller go because he was he was too critical. And what's can you guys think of one John Miller call? Like, do you know what John Miller call off the top of your head? A famous one. Uh, yes, him impersonating uh, Vin Scully in oh, Japan. That's good. That's good. But the worst base running in the history of the game. You guys ever yeah, hear that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. So there's a shot deep in the right center, racing back to Lucci, still going back into Death Valley. It goes right over his glove. He missed it, but Ruben Rivera missed second base. Now he's heading for third, and they're going to throw him out by plenty. But the corner third is back. Now he's heading home to loose ball in the infield, and he's out by five feet at the plate. And that was the worst base running in the history of the game. The game should be over, and Ruben Rivera just did the the worst base running you will ever see. That's critical. That is Ruben Rivera doing what might be the worst base running in the history of the game. (laughs) And you have an announcer calling it out in the moment, and the fans ate it up. Poor Ruben Rivera, because he's known for stealing a glove and the worst base running in the history of the game. He had like a 15-year career in Mexico where he hit like 400, but he's remembered for those two things, so I feel bad there. Fans ate that up, because they were watching it and going, what? How do you want missing bases and stuff? (laughs) Fans love it when the criticism is justified and fair and good. I just don't understand. Like, what are you talking about? You're watching the Orioles. There's 70 and 42. Why are you bringing negativity to a positivity party? I don't understand it. Yeah. Awesome. Fired up. But... (laughs) Yeah, wish not that not that I don't like Rustin here, but Carrig would freak out about this for forty five minutes straight. He he's got righteous indignation out the at the wazoo. Well, he'd start with a little bit of an NPR voice, <laughs> and then he'd pose a hypothetical question, and he'd go, "What are we doing?" And then he'd start. He'd boom, and then he's going off. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB Show. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs. 
And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Russ, since we got you here, what's up with the Royals, man? They got a, they got a winning streak going. Yeah, I mean, they've, uh, well, they lost last night, um, but uh, I think they've won like seven of their last 11 or seven of 10, maybe eight of 10. They acquired Cole Reagans for Aroldis Chapman. It was like a pre-deadline deal, but uh, they kind of jumped it, and Cole Reagans, a former first-round pitch, he looks good. I saw he was kind of compared, Alex Spire, I think, compared him to James Paxton-like stuff last night at Fenway Park. So he's a guy to watch if you're... A sicko who wants to uh, <laughs> care about the Kansas City Royals in in August in 2023, but um, you know Bobby Wood Jr. He's got 20 home runs and 30 some stolen bases and uh, a low on base percentage, but he's a good player. He's I, he's of over three wins at this point, so he's having a he's having a good season. So the thing about the Royals that fascinates me is it it seems like the pitching revolution, so to speak, passed them by entirely. The organizational, whether it was uh, spin rates or, you know, attack zones or seam shifted wake. I'm still trying to figure out what that is. Whatever it is, the Royals just, they were caught and they're back in 2012 with a flip phone going, oh, crap, we should probably invest in that. Since then, I believe that they have invested in more like a trying to redo the organizational blueprint for pitching. Have there been any positive signs in the the minors at, at any level? I don't know. I'm, I don't know if you know. So I'm hoping you know. It's hard to say. I think the best evidence is that like they seem to care about the right things now. You know, they hired Brian Sweeney from Cleveland. They, you know, obviously Matt Quattrero and Paul Hoover from Tampa Bay. So like they are putting in this infrastructure that is like they care about spin rates and they care about, you know, forcing fastballs and they, they seem to know how to, you know, build guys and like give guys weapons is it really you know so far you know are there huge statistical like evidence that this is working not to this point but it does seem like that they seem to be more competent in the things that people should care about in 2023 i don't know if that if that makes sense but they they seem to have reshifted their priorities in a way that can give maybe fans more confidence that they are they are on the right track in terms of sort of solving the puzzle, even if the the pieces are still kind of like scattered around the table and not exactly like not close to solving it yet. Like you live in New York, right? But you're still obviously like fairly connected to KC. Is the prevailing sentiment among Royals fans that the plan was solid, but the execution was sideways? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, is there a fork in the road, like, where fans are like, oh, we should have, they should have done that. Besides, because, like, the one that always comes up is, like, well, they could have traded people before 2017. 
right? Like, you, know, you could have traded all their free agents, but that always seemed like they were just never going to do that. So I, I'm just curious, like, what you what you feel like the prevailing sentiment is among, like, the sickos. Yeah, this could get into a long conversation. But, like, so, yeah, you are right. So Let's they, they won, won the World Series in 2015. They have this core that has about two years left. Could have started tra- or trading guys at that point, kind of turning things over. They didn't want to do that. So they played it out. I think the one mistake that maybe fans just point to is that post-2017, they were rebuilding and not really investing anything in payroll and basically embracing that they were going to be bad. Yet while they were embracing that they were going to be bad, they didn't really maximize any of the assets that they actually had on the roster, right? Mm, so, okay. Like they re-signed Salvador Perez. He hits 48 home runs. They don't really have any urgency to move him. Whit Merrifield, same thing, you know, not a, you know, a great player, but they waited probably a year or two long to move him when, you know, just let him be like a solid three and a half win player on a bad team for a couple of seasons. There's a couple other more minor examples, but like more or less, I mean, like I, I think their their problems were this rebuild hasn't taken because they invested in a lot of pitching and it hasn't really panned out yet. But also I think maybe they didn't really just totally embrace the idea of like, let's tear this down to the studs and rebuild our farm system and really go that way. It was almost like we're going to try to rebuild this thing while holding on to Salvador Perez and Whitmerfield and hoping that hoping that we can turn it over in like three or four years and those guys can be part of this next thing. That seems to be a, maybe a miscalculation. Although, you know, if they trade those guys, you know, are they in like a significantly better position right now? I guess it's hard to say, but that would probably be the one criticism of their plan this time was that they they were rebuilding but not totally maximizing their assets that they had on the roster i can marry these last two discussion topics of the rules where they're talking about the pitching stuff and did they do enough of the trade it's very easy to look at rebuilding as well you get the top draft picks and then you make the huge trades you trade your best players but the underrated part of rebuilding is having just arms pop up And all of a sudden, you've got a middle reliever who's having a great season, like poof, and then teams are after him, you know? Like, uh, Paul Seawald is maybe a little bit better than what I'm talking about, but the Royals just didn't have a Paul Seawald. The Royals weren't taking these 28, 29-year-old guys, building them up, using their knowledge to, to make them weaponized, and then trading them for a ton of prospects. And that's, you know, they weren't doing that with their own guys either. Like, if if the Royals had made Brady Singer into a guy, if they if they had uh, gone and they had made Brad Keller a guy, they would have been wildly popular at the deadline. They were just unable to do that with anyone. And so they weren't able to make those trades recently. And certainly in 2017, it's easy to look back and say, yeah, that was probably the time. I don't mind them going for it then. I think since then, it's just they haven't made baseball players better. And that's just, it's made their on-field team worse, but it's made their options as far as trading and rebuilding a lot worse too. Yeah. I mean, to go back just full circle to the Angels, you know, it's like the wire teams in the position that they're in, it usually just comes to drafting and developing players. And it's not too much more complicated than that. And so if you're just not producing, you know, good quality players from your minor league system consistently, doesn't really matter whatever else, like whatever path you're choosing or when you're trading this guy or when you're doing that, like, obviously those are decisions you should probably try to make the, you know, the best, you know, decision based on like what, how it's going to help your 
organization. But um, but if you're just also just missing consistently on high draft picks, then it's just sort of like, okay, that's oh, it makes sense why this team is done. <laughs> right. You know, I, it's not that complicated. Right. And it's also like, you know, I think about the uh, <clears throat> the Astros a lot with regard to how much hitting on one of those picks can obscure so many other things. Like, so the Astros had, I think they had the first pick three years in a row, and then they had the second pick the next year, right? So the first time they took Carlos Correa, huge success. The next time they took Mark Appel, then they took Brady Aiken, and then they took Alex Bregman. And having Correa and Bregman, like, hitting on those completely washes away the fact that they totally whiffed on two 1-1 picks, you know. And for the Royals, you just look at their first round. They picked, you know, they picked pretty high year after year, and it just compounds because they're not hitting on any of these. You know, the, the jury is still somewhat out on Bobby Witt. He seems like he's going to be a, a good player. Like, uh, they had sort of hoped he would be, like, an MVP type. He's 23 years old. Who knows? Like, he's got, you know, hopefully a long career ahead of him. But he hasn't been the sort of instant – force maybe that they they thought he would be he's kind of more you know taking a more traditional path frankly to develop but like you know that uh, that still doesn't obscure the fact that like was it you know Asa Lacey is like still on the complex he was like the fourth pick in you know 2020 you know they just have lots of misses and and if you miss like even if you are missing if you hit once or twice it's huge but you gotta keep like you have to have some success somewhere yeah, and Bobby Witt, he's an interesting player to if you just look at his season. He's actually been really, really good the last two and a half months. But his first season and then his like first month and a half of his second season, it was sort of like, okay, this guy's good, but like he kind of gives off some hobby Baez vibes, you know, like he doesn't get on base, he hits for power, he's kind of a, an electric player, but like, is he actually like how valuable is he? That it was like sort of that question. Where now he's he actually has played to the level of now where it's like oh, maybe he's actually Manny Machado where he like, you know, he hits 35 home runs and has a, you know, a 330 on base percentage, but that doesn't really matter because he's good at defense and he hits like crazy, you know, he hits for power and does all like, does all these other things well. And that's like, a, I guess, Baez to Machado is a pretty wide, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. so if he's closer to Machado, that is a significant win. But like for a while it was like, oh, this guy, you know, you'd like, you know, like any team would take Javi Baez, especially like a Javi Baez on a rookie, you know, the first three years and then an arbitration, but like not exactly a superstar that you can like, you know, build your whole thing around, I guess. Javi Baez currently has a 587 OPS. A 587 slugging? That's pretty good. <laughs> Wait a second. My processing is catching up. Yeah, that trade, I mean, or that signing. And by the way, sorry, not just to, just to, he slugged 554 in 2018. He slugged his OPS once. That's wild. Yeah, I just, that was, there were, you ever see the Farsight cartoon where it says, uh, how nature says do not touch, and it's got different animals, and then it's got a guy with a boot on his head and, and a floaty. Like, looking at Baez's strikeout to walk ratio, when he's asking for nine-figure contract, it's like, that's how nature says do not touch. That's not going to age well. You've seen, you've, it's very rare that you see a guy with that sort of lopsided plate discipline just get better and better uh, as the, the, the fast twitch mechanics go down. The Orioles learn the lessons of hard tanking from the Royals and the Tigers, which is uh, trade everything. 
and also never spend, and you will emerge as the best team, and we'll all just kind of have to deal with it. Grant, whenever <laughs> I, whenever I, when I listen to you on a podcast or we interact, like all I think about is Simpsons references. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just, you, you just brought up Gary Larson, and the first thing I thought of was, oh, a Gary Larson calendar, and then Homer's like, don't get it, don't get it, don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that way. Wait, what? What season is that? I don't know. Somebody can. I have no. I'd have to look up what episodes it's on. But it's just like Homer's like, oh, a Gary Larson calendar, and then he just starts scrolling through, and he's like, don't get it. <laughs> just, <laughs> he, he's like, go straight to cow tools, and just like, oh gosh. According to the internet, it's from it's from Treehouse of Horror eight season nine. Oh, I should know that. I should know that. Yeah. All right, I apologize. I should go. Is where can someone watch The Simpsons? Where can I go back and find them? Disney, 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 Disney Plus. Plus. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I have that. Are they just going to change the name of that to Plus someday? But they're going to change it. So what is Disney? They're going to uh, change it to like ABC Go or something, right? Because if they're <laughs> going to follow the HBO Max, they're going right, to take right, right. the much less valuable brand name and just, you know, we're ABC Go now. Well, all your ABC home improvement content. Yeah, we're about there. I don't know. I don't know. What else you guys got? Well, I just wanted, when you're talking about the Royals and rebuilding and all that stuff, I wanted to pose a question to Andy as someone who is actually uh, intimately familiar with these two teams. All right. So Chris Taylor, Max Muncy, and uh, Justin Turner. Did the Dodgers, how much of that is luck? How much of that is skill? How much of that should you expect a team like the Royals to be able to do? Yeah. Justin Turner is almost completely luck on the Dodgers' behalf. Justin Turner failed his physical. He only got signed by them because the Mets DFA'd him for, you know, kind of roster maintenance reasons. Mets fans have rude that day for quite some time. He had made he had made some swing changes. Uh, Marlon Bird had hooked him up with a gentleman named Doug Latta, who was like a pool repairman in like the South Bay, who basically changed his swing a little bit. He started to show some results at the end of the year. But like he didn't get the job because, you know, and, and then he was signed by the Ned Coletti regime and like Coletti gets credit for bringing him in. But it's not like they they were like, oh, wow, we saw these swing changes. Like when it was more like, hey, we like that guy as a player. He'd always made contact. He ran into Tim Wallach, another former uh, Cal State Fullerton alum. I think are those the dirt bags? No, that's Long Beach. Maybe. I don't know. Whatever. He ran into him at a Fullerton like alumni event. And Wallach was like, do you have a job? And he was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and he got signed by the Dodgers to a minor league deal. Right. He goes into this team with a bunch of stars. He eventually works his way to a position of prominence, kind of all on his own. Chris Taylor, they traded Zach Lee, who was, um, you know, this big uh, two, like he had been a, was like a quarterback at LSU. They tried to be a pitcher, but didn't do it. They traded Zach Lee for him. And Taylor basically spent a year kind of bouncing back and forth between the minors and the majors. Kind of the same thing happened with Max Muncy. The A's got rid of him. They just kind of cut him. And Farhan Zaidi had like kind of liked some of his, you know, characteristics. And so they signed him and he spent a year going back and forth. You know, he actually didn't. He just spent the whole year in AAA, all of 17. And the point is, is that they get credit for identifying players with certain characteristics that could be enhanced. They get credit for um, hooking them up with outside help, like Chris Taylor went and worked, uh, I believe, with Craig Wallenbrock and Robert Van Skoik, who were two of the hitting guys who um, 
you know, helped fix J.D. Martinez. Uh, Van Skoik is now the Dodgers hitting coach, like full stop. Back then they were, you know, two kooky guys in a, you know, in a garage. Muncie made some swing changes as well. And when those guys came up to the majors, this is a very long thing, but it's also similar to Turner. When they came up to the majors, they were batting seventh, eighth. Like they're, you know, a guy who gets to play when the other, when the stars need a day off and they didn't, they weren't expected to be, you know, all stars. They weren't expected to do much of anything. Anything the team got from them was a bonus, but the Dodgers had created this sort of, you know, through a combination of money, luck, scouting, all this stuff where they could basically afford random guys runway to be stars if they could continue to play. Should the Royals be able to do that? So the thing is, like, what happens if Max Muncy does all those things and he's crushing in AAA and the Royals bring him up and he install him as, like, the number three hitter because he's – you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. Like, what what becomes of that? What happens if he's not in a clubhouse – where every day he's interacting with Justin Turner and Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger and Jock Peterson. And if he wants to go talk to Clayton Kershaw, like he can go do that, you know, like how much of that is the, the culture that they have, the resources that they have. Like, I think that they have, it's not an unfair advantage, but they've, they're so much further ahead with the amount of talent that they had in house that they were able to do all the other ancillary things. Like, so I think other teams can do that, but it's just really hard. I mean, you just don't see many teams doing that anymore. There was a period of time where a bunch of guys kind of got pulled off the scrap heap and made into stars. And that period's kind of ended in part because the way players are evaluated has changed and uh, teams are more like understanding of like, okay, that guy's like the way Max Muncy controls a strike zone. When I see that in a guy who's playing, you know, in high school or college, I want that in a way that in 2016, it wasn't as noted, you know, in sort of the, uh, the evaluation process. But there's not a lot of Guys, it's with relievers, sure. You know, a guy falls off the back of the turnip truck and he's Deeks McDeekerson for the Rays, you know. But like for position players, it's just not as common anymore, you know? Yeah. Okay, that's a great answer. I can't believe that we fit like actual really good baseball stuff in the last <laughs> five minutes. I will I will end with a hypothetical. What do you think? Robert Van Skoik could do for Logan O'Hoppy's swing. <laughs> I hope Robert Van Skoik becomes your new guy. Oh man, that, I because I looked at that and that I I knew I knew how it read on the on uh, paper. It seems like it's a last name that could be like pronounced like Shashevsky, like almost like Robert Van yeah, Schwa yeah. or something. Uh, but Skoik, <laughs> uh, I like that. So yeah, Logan. it might be Skoyak. I don't know. He doesn't really talk to the media, so I'm not too worried about. I'm it. I'm going with Schwa just because I remember seventh grade English class. <laughs> He's the, he's a he's a Dutch Frenchman. <laughs> Robert Van Schwa. Those Dutch friends, they'll get you. All right. Uh, this has been episode 60 of the round table. Uh, I would like to thank pinch hitter Rustin Dodd. Rustin, you brought the energy. Uh, Mark's on thin ice. So, you know, we might have you back. Mark's not adding a ton. You know, Andy, have you noticed that? Like he's just not Hey, unlike Mark, Rustin <laughs> has written a book. <laughs> Where's my damn book on the A's, Mark? Yeah, uh, Mark. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's where he is. Maybe he's on book leave. He's not on book oh, leave. Oh, man, I hope so. Yeah, Mark said the Angels should buy. And Andy and I were like, are you nuts? You know what else you should buy? Kingdom Quarterback by Rustin Dodd and Mark Dent. It's out August 22nd. And it's about Patrick Mahomes in just uh, Kansas City sports? Yeah, Patrick Mahomes and the history of Kansas City. So if you like 
American cities and stories like that, you'll love this book. The the kid, <laughs> the kid I don't really know much about. His dad, though, how much is his dad featured in the book? He's featured quite a bit. Uh, we tell his story as well. So there's uh, there's quite a bit of that. We tell Actually, we tell a story about how the Diamondbacks almost drafted Patrick Mahomes, like very high in the in the draft out of high school. They were like the, the team that was probably most he was drafted by the Tigers, but that was like, you know, kind of a 37th round pick, kind of just not a not a real thing. The Diamondbacks went into his home about a week or two before the draft and were sort of negotiating a number. The Mahomes kind of threw out a number and uh, it was pretty high. The Diamondbacks ultimately were like, Yeah, this kid probably wants to play football. But they were they were probably the team that was most hot on his trail. So as a Niners fan, I don't know how to feel with the idea that the Diamondbacks should have should have helped the Niners. Uh, that, that's pretty annoying to me. Damn it, Diamondbacks. All right. Buy the book. Buy the book. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rustin. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about baseball because that's what we do. We'll see you then. Brain dance! I was very wrong. <laughs>